The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So I'm going to talk a little bit tonight about practice and responsibility of seclusion. And when I say that word seclusion, some of you may immediately think about retreating as one way of practicing seclusion. And it's true that I will talk a little bit about retreating, but it's not the only it's not the only way. Retreating is a common part of this practice that a lot of us take up. Every year we some of us spend some days on retreat. Every month there's a half-day retreat or a day-long retreat at Common Ground. Four times a year there are retreats at Metta Retreat Center from three to five days long. And then Twin Cities Vipassana Collective organizes a nine-day retreat twice a year. So you can just already see by the number of opportunities that it is something that practitioners often feel is important. But we can have a taste of what it means to go on retreat, even in small ways. We can, we can really kind of get a feel for what that might be like to do a longer retreat. You know, in just the amount of time that we carve out for formal practice, even in a day like tonight, coming to common ground for a sit, or waking up in the morning and doing a short sit, 10, 15, 30 minutes, an hour, whatever it is for you. But just that commitment to carve, carve out some time to just to be with our inner experience. And there's evidence in the suttas or in the um, teachings, in the, in the formal discourses uh, that point to how seclusion is a good thing. And the Buddha did a lot of practices with seclusion, and often he would go off by himself and practice for long periods of time. But even when there were a lot of people that came to hear him talk, he would often kind of migrate away from the people for a little more solitude. So we can take a look what is at this heart of at the heart of this practice of seclusion. And even though it may seem like secluding, like going off on a retreat is a good thing, and it it is a good thing, it can really be motivated by the wrong, it can be, you know, we can go off for the wrong reasons. Like we can want to go off on a retreat, and I see this in my mind sometimes, like when my life gets busy or it feels like there's too much chaotic, chaotic noise in my life, I catch the thought like, oh, I could really use a retreat right now. So it's not so much in that moment an intention to purify the mind or develop deeper understanding of the teachings, but in that moment the intention is really to escape something, to escape something I don't like or want. And it's a sort of running away from the messiness of the, of the world. But that's really 
a misunderstanding because we have this this thought that secluding or running away in some way will actually escape the messiness of the world. But the messiness of the world is actually right here. It's actually in the mind, in the way the mind is relating to the conditions of our lives, to the conditions of this world. We might call it a mess, and it might be a mess. But the fact is that mess is, is, is really right here. It's alive in the mind, in our, the way that we are sort of creating a story around all of the sense experience that's coming in, all of the activities So the difficulty is in our minds in, in actually the images or the contraction of the heart or the memories that are sort of um, provoked by our lives, right? And we, like we've been studying over the past few months, the teaching on emptiness, reading this book by Guy Armstrong, some of you are following along in that. And part of that, the teaching of emptiness reminds us that what actually comes in is very simple. It comes in through the sense gates. It comes in through the five senses. Our experiences, all of our experiences, can be summed up by what we take in through the senses and the activity of the mind or the thinking mind or the knowing mind the activity of the mind. And it's the mind, it's the the story that's layered on top of these raw experiences that is, in fact, the mess of the world, right? So going off to retreat somewhere doesn't actually, we don't actually escape that mess. We don't escape the aversion or what we don't like about it or the clenching or the pain or the fear or the anger about our lives, we don't actually escape that because it was born in the mind. All of that was birthed in the mind. What we can do when we go away or seclude the mind or in some way go off on a retreat or sit down for a formal practice is um, not be provoked. The mind is not going to be provoked by the world so much, right? So we can, the only thing we can actually do to escape the world is to get a break from the sensory input of our emo- or our emotional activation from sensory input. So actually trying to run away from the chaos of the mind, we, we learn that the chaos of the mind, the, running away from the chaos of the world is actually the chaos of the mind and will follow us or go back with us unless we do something about um, supporting the mind, right? supporting its, the development of understanding in the mind so that we can relate to the truth of our experiences differently and without so much reactivity. So there is value in retreating. 
it's a good and important part of the past, significant part of the past. Past. Path. Not past. It is a part of the past also because I've, you know, I've done a lot of retreats, but it's also a part of the path. <laughs> and it's more than, you know, like we go off on retreats or we sit down for two different examples, right? We sit down on the cushion and we sit down in silence. All 100 of us come to common ground and we sit down here in silence and turn inward. So that silence is a part of the seclusion also. The silence that helps us actually tune into um, the, our inner experiences. But the silence alone of retreat, the simplicity of our activities right now or the simplicity of the activities when we go away or come to Common Ground for a half-day retreat. You know, our activities get really simple. We're not doing a lot. We're sitting, we're walking, we're doing some very basic activities of taking care of our bodies and our, our health, you know, some regular daily activities like washing up or making a meal or something like that. So our minds get really simple, our activities get really simple, and the silence is important to help us sort of um, use those activities in the service of deeper understanding or wisdom. So the silence alone that we get from practice isn't, isn't enough, but it needs to be supported by, the silence supports the wisdom, the su- supports the understanding in the mind that develops through the silence, and the wisdom supports that capacity to remain in the silence or in the stillness for longer periods of time. So you can see this sort of happen when, you know, you, we, we all are growing in our practice, and the capacity to sit still on the cushion might grow from, you know, five minutes to 10 minutes to 30 minutes, and then before we know it, we can sit and remain in silence and be with the conditions as they are for longer and longer periods of time. And it's not so much because of the silence and just enduring or tolerating that, but it's actually because of what is happening in the mind, our capacity of the mind to, to meet the conditions as they are, right? So much of being with our experience on the cushion or on retreat is about learning to be with difficulty. If it were just pure bliss, we would be able to do it for long, extraordinarily long periods of time, probably right away. But it's not like that. And we've probably all seen that. We sit down and we think, oh, you know, I wonder what's going to happen in this sit. And then it's a few minutes of ease, and then it's a pain in the knee, and then a memory in the mind that's painful, and then more pain in the body, and then too much sound or too little sound or the heat's not right. or So we're just sort of learning to be with all of that with, with more and more ease, right? And as we, as we grow in that capacity, our growth is in part because of the wisdom of the mind that's coming along with the practice, right? So we begin to see that like heat the experience of temperature in the room is really just this, right? It's not something that's super, it's not personal. It's just sensations in the body and the not liking it in the mind, for example, right? So it's, it becomes possible 
to meet and greet and accept the conditions of our lives because of our deeper understanding. So with that seclusion, with secluding the mind going off or sitting down, what we're actually doing is giving the mind a break from all its proliferation, from all its trying to solve problems, trying to be somebody or do something. This is what the mind is doing a lot in our daily lives when we're um, confronted with all kinds of experiences. But when we kind of seclude the mind or move away from so much stimuli, so much sensory input, there is a potential for the mind to just rest and accept whatever comes its way, right? Accept all of the visitors, the painful sensations in the body, the worry or anxiety in the mind, the fear, the unpleasant temperature, unpleasant this or unpleasant that. So there's a kind of resting in awareness that is possible with practice, and that is really the value of seclusion, learning how to rest the mind and just be. The observing mind just knows, meets, and greets the experiences as they come. It's retreating into a more reflective state. It's just like the mind is reflecting like on what it's knowing, like, oh, the body is being known. A sound is being known. A sound is being known, and it's like this. And like I said, it doesn't have to be that, you know, retreating is important, and it's not the only way to practice seclusion. I work in schools um, half the time, and I really practice seclusion in the midst of my daily life. Also, with just taking simple moments to kind of narrow my focus and walk down the hallway in a slow way, just really landing with my own experience of walking, feeling the body, noticing the contact, accepting the way things are, accepting the body the way it is, accepting all, sometimes it's a lot of proliferation in the mind, and that can be accepted and known too, right? Sometimes... My day is full, I'm a social worker, so it's full of kids and solving problems and trying to solve unsolvable problems, so the mind is really active and doing stuff, and then, but taking those moments, like in between picking up students to walk down the hallway and just land and accept that that's the way things are right now. Oh, the mind is doing this, the mind wants to keep thinking, or the mind is worrying, oh, it's like this, worry is like this, Right? It kind of points to this natural process, something that was set in motion by something else, right? Conditions that give rise to new experiences. So it is the natural state of the mind to know. The mind is always ready to know. And the practicalities of practice... Practicalities of practice? (laughs) I don't know. 
uh, something like that. <laughs> what I want to say is, you know, the way that we practice or whether we, for example, whether we take up an anchor, right, whether we practice by staying connected to the breath, connecting and sustaining the attention on the breath, or whether we practice with an open attention and just accepting experiences into our awareness, however they come, or whether we're practicing metta or some other practice. Those are only important practices in so far as they point us in the direction of the mind that knows, right? So we really want to be able, no matter what practice we're using, we want to be able to see the mind. We want to be able to see the mind, the mind observing something. So for example, we're all sitting here and listening to this talk, but you're only really, the mind is only really aware, the mind is only, we're only really being mindful if you know that the mind is aware of listening to a talk at Common Ground here. Right? How many times have you been reading or listening to a talk or something and you completely space out and then have to like rewind or go back and read another page again, right? Because the mind is checked out, it forgot to be aware. So we're cultivating a reflective presence where we're aware that the mind is know what the mind is knowing anytime it's knowing something. So we're aware of the mind is knowing the in-breath. We're aware that the mind is knowing worry. We're aware that mind is knowing calm or stillness. We're aware that the mind is knowing restlessness. Whatever the mind is knowing, a pain in the knee. It's not just a pain in the knee that's being the not just a pain in the knee, it's that a pain in the knee is actually being known in the mind. And that's what we want to connect with. So when we're connecting and sustaining the attention on any object, there is a strength that's cultivated in this habit of knowing. And that's why we call this a training, right? It's not like a destination once we get there, but it's a training that we have to take up again and again and again. It's something that needs to be practiced, that habit of knowing. Even though this is the natural tendency of the mind to know, we spend so much of our time cultivating a habit of distraction or denial or avoidance or delusion or fear or greed. Like We're practicing those habits so often that we have to practice resting in awareness and accepting the conditions as they are, too this training or training in cultivating a, um, an attention that is able to do that. And it's like if you decided tomorrow that you wanted to run a marathon but hadn't been running and you tried to run that marathon, it would be really hard, right? It would be, you'd probably be crying, you'd want to quit, who knows if you'd finish, it would hurt the chest, the body, oh, it would be a slog. But if you were practicing training, running day by day and getting stronger as you went, then running that marathon might not be easy, but it would be doable, right? It's like training and cultivating a habit of awareness. It just grows with strength over time. The mind really wants to know, and it will learn. It will continue to, uh, that habit of, 
of being with the conditions, being with the experiences of our lives, will will grow in strength. And so it won't be such, it's not that effortful, actually, because the awareness is always available. The knowing mind is ready to know and will become and will be able to know the experiences of our lives if we cultivate that habit of knowing. And taking care of the mind, secluding the mind, taking care of the mind, resting, making things really simple so that we can do this important work of turning inward is not just something that we, it's not just a selfish act, right? It can seem that way, that we decide to go off on a, take a whole day on Saturday for a retreat. It can sometimes feel like that's a selfish thing to do. But that's just really a misunderstanding because it's a misunderstanding that is, it's a misunderstanding of delusion, really. Because it's forgetting that cultivating this habit of the mind to be aware and being able to accept the conditions, and especially the difficult conditions of our lives, without reacting to them, acting them out in ways that are hurtful to ourselves and and others, it's forgetting that that is not just a benefit to us, but it's a benefit to everyone. Right? Does the world actually need more reactivity? Does the world need us to go around just acting out our habits of delusion and distraction and greed and aversion? No. That's not what we need, our families need, our friends need, our communities need. What we need from each other is to be able to tolerate some of that discomfort and respond in a way that's useful right, and not hurtful. So this is what we're doing when we're secluding, when we're going off. We're actually cultivating the capacity to do that. What a beautiful thing. I remember the first time I was going, I went off on a long retreat, and I don't know, my, one of my, I was sitting with my teacher, one of my teachers, and talking about something, about my fears maybe about the retreat or something like that, and he just listened, but then said, you know, Shelley, don't forget that retreating is good for you, it's good for your wife, it's good for your mom, it's good for the community. And it was just that simple. Like, because it's not just a practice that we're, this is not something that we're just doing for ourselves. There is always value for others. There's this beautiful poem by Naomi Shihab Nye that just really speaks to me about the importance of um, not forgetting that we're practicing for each other. A man crosses the street in rain, stepping gently, looking two times north and south because his son is asleep on his shoulder. No car must splash him, no car drive too near to his shadow. This man carries the world's most sensitive cargo, but he's not marked. Nowhere does his jacket say fragile, handle with care. His ears fill up with breathing. He hears the hum of a boy's dream deep inside him. We're not going to be able to live in this world if we're not willing to do what he's doing with one another. The road will only be wide. The rain will never stop falling. 
Like it's not, there's no guarantee of comfort or ease. But this learning how to be with difficult experiences is so important. Right? We don't want to be dependent on our reactions for getting through life. We want to be able to respond in a good and wholesome, healthy, skillful way. It may sound like a paradox, this thing we hear from teachers um, quite often, accept the conditions as they are and support the knowing mind by resting in seclusion, right? Accepting things as they are and resting in seclusion. But they, these are actually two aspects that are supporting each other. Right? Kind of just the way I was trying to demonstrate that that it sometimes takes us to sit down and carve out some time and space in our lives for practice in order to be able to see the way the mind reacts to the conditions of our lives. Right? The way the, that this raw input is, there's like this overlay of a story that's infused with greed or aversion or fighting something or forcing something or denying something or pretending like it isn't that way. That's hard to see with a lot of stimulus coming our way, that it's actually supportive to be in more simple conditions to actually do the work of looking inward, to be able to actually be with things. And then we develop some faith with a little courage to be able to do it more skillfully in our daily lives too. And as things get more and more still in the mind, more and more stable as continuity is established in the mind, then more and more subtleties are known. I was pointing this out a little bit in the guided meditation that, you know, at first it may seem like what we're noticing are gross experiences of the body, maybe some sensations in the knees or the pain in the back or whatever that is, but over with a little more practice as that habit of awareness is established, then we can see that there's not just sensation in the knee, but there's a hating it, right? And then we get to be with that. Then we're learning how to be with aversion. We're learning how to be with not liking something. Is that valuable? Learn how to be with the things that we don't like? Yeah. I mean, how often does that occur in our lives, in our day, in an hour, or where something has arisen that we don't actually like? And do we want to be dependent upon, in that moment, or our reaction to just get away from it? Do we want to be dependent on moving away from something we don't like? Or do we want to be able to receive that and not have to fold in the face of difficulty? And sometimes it can be useful in our practice to drop in questions 
You know, like, is the mind aware is one way to bring the mind to sort of drop in that um, encouragement of the mind to know, it's to, to know the knowing mind, right? And then another question could be, like, is the mind, is this, is the mind aware with any greed or aversion, or is the mind aware with right view? And this, I, this concept or this idea of right view is just pointing us in the direction of a natural and, and lawful unfolding, nature, not self, right? That this, whatever this is, this boredom, this pain, this um, way of relating to our experience, whatever this is, is, couldn't be any other way. It's a natural response to something that preceded it. Right? It's a natural unfolding that right now who we are as human beings is a result of who we were in hum- as a human being last year and the year before that and the year before that and all the way back to all of the habits that were cultivated with time since we were infants. Right, All of our formative experiences have informed who we are. So who we are now, we couldn't actually be any other way given all of that. Right? So this is what we mean by right view, is just understanding like, oh, things are like this. And they couldn't actually be any other way. It doesn't mean that we don't have some capacity to transform the ugly habits of mind. It doesn't mean that at all. It's just an acknowledgement that this, what's here, present, is a result of something, and therefore it can't be any different than it is. There's no sense in hoping for a better past. It's gone. So our choices are just to accept this and be with this or to do something not that useful like denying or defending or pushing it away, which doesn't make sense because we've tried that and we know it doesn't make sense. Right? Right view is just knowing that this process, that this process of knowing or understanding is just a natural process. It's not, it's not self, it's not, it's not personal. It's a result of causes and conditions. And when there's continuity in the mindfulness practice, even if it's unskillful thinking that we're noticing, the mind can even recognize that as a natural process. And this is sometimes what I notice when I'm walking down the hallway at my school. I notice the, like, the unskillfulness of proliferating worry thoughts, right? Worrying about a student that I've worked with or something like that. But sometimes in those moments, the mind can actually see uh, this is right, see that proliferation with right view. Like, oh, this is just a natural unfolding of life. It's just a result of something. It's not actually personal. It's something that had been set in motion already. And I love this statement by Sayadaw Utejaniya. He he sometimes says that knowing wrong view is right view, right? So when the knowing mind can recognize wrong view, it's still aligning with right view, right? What is right view? Right view is just recognizing that, that this is lawful. This unfolding right here is lawful. So this unfolding of wrong view 
right, is actually a lawful unfolding. So you're still orienting. So you can't go wrong. Like the knowing mind, whatever the mind can know, if it can know it with as much wisdom as possible, then you're, we're on the right path. I was sort of noticing, this, you know, I've been working with this topic for a little while, thinking about what I might say tonight. And the other, a couple nights ago, my partner and I got into a small argument, not a big deal, but um, just a little exchange. It was short. But I was, so I was like really playing with what was happening in my mind. <clears throat> And I immediately noticed like all of the like anger and self-righteousness, right, that was there, like I'm right and she's wrong. And all of those thoughts about like I want to re-engage this conversation because I want to be right and I need her to know that she's wrong and, um, and so on and so forth. And I could see like that there was a little bit of wisdom in the mind that I could see what a trap that was. Like this really hurts. And there was enough kind of wisdom there to know like re-engaging the conversation is probably not going to be that useful right now. So then I had some choices to make. But I, you know, there was this instinct to want to like run away from it, to do something to distract myself, go wash the dishes or do something else, right? Because it was painful and I didn't actually want to be with it, right? But I could see too that the problem was not actually in her or even in the argument. It was right here in the mind. It was actually in the mind, that relating, that not liking, that the anger that was there, not wanting it to be there. And so at some point, there was a decision just to surrender. There was like some understanding that there's no point in fighting this, sweetie. Like talking, rehashing it with my partner will probably only feel that self-righteousness and going to do the dishes or... Listening to some music may be soothing for a moment, but eventually, you know, this will be here. It's still here right now. So the only option that really made sense was to work with it. So I just decided to sit there with my eyes closed and just watch the thoughts come and go, watch the sensations in the body come and go. And it was just, it was really, it was really an interesting moment that developed some um, faith that, oh yeah, this is natural and it's, it's actually I'm seeing it come and go. I'm seeing the impermanence of it all. And there's some courage there that I don't actually have to be um, a victim to these defilements of mind, even the unpleasant mind states like anger and self-righteousness. And just maybe one more short story. I was, um, Ruth King was here this weekend. Ruth King is an amazing Dharma teacher in North Carolina, and she's been planning this visit for a couple years, actually. She taught a two and a half day uh, workshop, Mindful of Race, for the leadership here at Common Ground, the teachers, the board, the staff, and some community group facilitators. And it was just, it was really great to be there and learn so much about um, how whiteness shows up, right? The, these values that have been kind
kind of ingrained in uh, the way, just in the air that we breathe almost, and to kind of and to learn about r- really how it's it was is a natural. Uh, it's it's not it's not so much personal or individual, but these individualistic values or um, values of um, success or individual uh, intellectual understanding over uh, understanding by way of music or ritual or um, community, right? That these values of whiteness have just been absorbed into this body for so long, right? That it, 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 was, it became more and more clear how it doesn't make sense to take that personal because that was such, it has been a natural unfolding of its, of its own kind, right? It's not actually about Shelley who has to be a particular person or is a particular kind of person. It's just like, oh yeah, watching my mind value no understanding, intellectual understanding over this dance activity that we're doing, that is a natural unfolding of what whiteness has, um, how whiteness has settled into my bones over the years, right? Or kind of watching the mind that wants to analyze this instead of just rest in the kind of beauty of community, right? Just seeing this over and over again, it was so important for me. I think I'll end with this little uh, piece of writing by Louise Erdrich called Advice to Myself. And it really reminds me of the power of keeping life simple and how it's easier to see these. It's easier to have right view. It's easier to be with conditions, especially difficult conditions, with um, the strategy of seclusion when we take up the strategy of seclusion from time to time. It's easier to set down the dependency of the mind to solve problems or fix things. Advice to myself. Leave the dishes. Let the celery rot in the bottom drawer of the refrigerator and an earthen scum harden on the kitchen floor. Leave the black crumbs in the bottom of the toaster. Throw the cracked bowl out and don't patch the cup. Don't patch anything. Don't mend. Don't even sew on a button. Let the wind have its way, then the earth that invades as dust, and then the dead foaming up in gray rolls underneath the couch. Talk to them. Tell them they are welcome. Don't keep all the pieces of the puzzles or the doll's tiny shoes and pairs. Don't worry who uses whose toothbrush or if anything matches at all. Pursue the authentic Decide first what is authentic. Then go after it with all your heart. Your heart. That place you don't even think of cleaning out. That closet stuffed with savage mementos. Don't sort the paper clips from screws from saved baby teeth. Or worry if we're all eating cereal for dinner. Again. Don't answer the telephone ever. Or weep over anything at all that breaks. Pink molds will grow within those sealed cartons in the refrigerator. Accept new forms of life and talk to the dead. Talk to the dead who drift in through the screened windows, who collect patiently on the tops of food jars and books. Recycle the mail. Don't read it. Don't read anything. 
Accept what destroys the insulation between yourself and your experience, or what pulls down, or what strikes at, or what shatters this ruse you call necessity. How about that, huh? What's the name of the Louise Erdrich? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic writer. That could have been the whole Dharma talk. (laughs) So we have about 15, maybe 10 minutes or so for a discussion. You can ask questions, you can just share your thoughts. We have a microphone somewhere. Right, there we go. Just raise your hand if you have something to say, and we'll get it to you. I'll uh, start us off. <laughs> Thank you. There's probably a lot of meanings to be taken out of that poem. Um, would you say that maybe one of the main themes is just not trying to kind of control as much, control the environment in your life? Because, I mean, there's that, you know, part of, part of mindful living where you're kind of engaged, but it's also like that was just pointing out kind of the extreme of just kind of letting go of some of those obsessive behaviors. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the power of right view that joins the simplicity and silence of seclusion. Is that the wisdom to that we don't actually, there's no sense of trying to control Like the best that we can do is meet, accept, investigate, or get interested in this, and then not take it personally. Yeah. So much of our lives are spending trying to control the conditions to make things just right so that we're comfortable. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't take care of ourselves in a good way. We should take care of ourselves. But there's also some power to just accepting things as they are, right? And when we go on retreat, when the conditions are really simple, we just kind of agree to not worry about all that stuff, right? We don't have to, not trying to put on the best clothes or have the perfect meal. We're just accepting this and then this. We're accepting this activity, the simple activity of sitting and walking. We're not looking for entertainment in other ways. But it's a real practice and accepting things as they are so that we can be content in in our lives no matter what comes our way. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it is difficult kind of finding that line, you know, where you're still making decisions in life, sometimes big decisions, but you're just completely content trying or trying to kind of hold that space and you're making decisions or just not making decisions. Yeah. So. It's not that making decisions are, there's anything wrong. We have to make decisions. We have to keep going forward. It's just that we want to be able to watch the mind, to know what the mind is doing when it's doing it. So when the mind is making a decision, we're knowing that. Like the knowing mind is engaged. Like, oh, this is a decision, and now it's over, and I accept all the consequences that come from it, no matter what they are, and I'm just going to surrender to that. 
that this decision set something in motion, right? And now there's no changing that. No pressure to talk. We can just sit here in silence together. That's lovely too. Say something about the uh, differentiation between acceptance and denial. Can I say something about the distinction? The distinction. Yeah, the, the distinction between acceptance and denial. The, the distinction between acceptance and denial. Yeah. And how do you recognize it in yourself that you're doing one or the other? Yeah. Yeah, the practice always begins with just, you know, in, in the most simple of ways, it's just to, to look, right? And to know, for me, my practice, you know, I've learned to look through the body a lot. So often it's just a question of like, well, if this is acceptance, then what does it feel like and how do I know? I know because it feels like this in the body and... I recognize it because I've seen it like this in the body before, and so I, I can understand that now. And then denial feels differently in the body, right? Denial feels much differently in the body, and it feels differently in the mind, right? So there's, so, so then we get to, you don't have to take my word for it, but you can go check that out yourselves. Like, just ask. Every time, you know, something new comes up and you're curious about what that's like, like, how does it land in the body? Like, what are the thoughts here? How do I know this is whatever it is? How do I know this is fear? Oh, because it feels like this. I can feel it here. And I can feel it here. And these thoughts have a particular pattern to them. They have a flavor, right? And then once you recognize it one time, then you might be able to recognize it again. don't even have to go looking for it. But sometimes it will even, like the feeling in the body will even precede the thought about it, right? There's like a little bit of percolating, and I'm like, oh, what is, that's really interesting. And then it will make itself known, right? And sometimes it doesn't even have to, it doesn't have to be so conceptual, like languaging in the mind doesn't have to be in the form of thought. Sometimes it can just be a discomfort that doesn't feel quite right. Yeah. I would tend to look for a justification to make that distinction. Mm. Is there, is there, has that action or that thought pattern or whatever been, uh, been justified by something? You know, if, if there was acceptance, 
the way things are, then it just it just lays still. There's nothing mm. moving around. But if it's denials, and there might be a that's okay because <laughs> yeah, that's good. In the back, comments. Um, so, on this um, kind of idea about denial, or um, anyway, I got I um, was talking with a friend, and she had some bad news about health, and. Um, and it's not new news, but not good news. And when I got off the phone, I was so aware that I felt nothing, and which is a very strange feeling. And it was just kind of this ex- sort of weird bodily sensation. I was aware of my body, and I tried to just be present with that, thinking you can't possibly feel nothing. And but that's that's what the experience was, and I tried to just kind of stay with that a little bit, and um, and didn't worry about it too much because I realized that probably isn't like the whole. That's not. I I know that's not the whole picture, but that's just what it was right then. And then I like turned on the television, you know. <laughs> but it was. Um, I was. I just thought it was so curious. Um. Because I just didn't know how to feel, like what to feel, how to feel. And so it just felt like an absence of anything. Yeah, Yeah, this happens sometimes, right? We just feel kind of numb to, in in a surprising way, it may catch us off guard. And there may even be some interest there, like, oh, this is weird. And then immediately, like, you kind of just articulated, the mind starts to figure it out, like, well, why is this happening? This can't be so, right? But we can really, like, just acknowledge that this is totally normal. Like, we all feel numb from time to time, and sometimes it's in surprising moments. And then we can just get to know the experience of feeling numb and really kind of care about that and not judge ourselves, try not to judge ourselves for it or condemn ourselves in any way, blame, or try to solve a problem to get it to leave, right? But we can just accept, like, yep, it's like this right now. Just like this right now. This is what it's like to be a human being right now. This couldn't actually be any other way, given the conditions as they are. This is just a natural, lawful unfolding like everything else. Can this be okay, too? Thank you. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.